You're listening to Tatiana is Everyone, an Orphan Black podcast. I'm your host, Chris. And I'm Stephanie. And this is not a spoiler-free episode. We will be talking about Orphan Black in its entirety, which, as of this recording, is up through the end of Season 2. So if you haven't seen all of those episodes, there could be some spoilers ahead for you. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about Rachel, or as Stephanie has dubbed her, Local Jerk Face. You know, because we call Mrs. S international badass. Rachel is our local jerk face. <laughs> Even though she traveled to Hong Kong. But we don't know if she was a jerk in Hong Kong. I suppose that's true. It's likely. But where have we seen her be a jerk? Here. Locally. In Clone, in Clone Ronto. And locally. So when it comes to Rachel... I feel like when we were trying to figure out, you know, who all do we need to talk about? We were making our lists of characters we hadn't covered before, as well as characters that we had and how we wanted to talk about them. When we got to Rachel, I feel like both of us were kind of like, Ugh, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. I believe both of us did actually say some sort of variation on that. Now, here's the thing. I mean, I, I think we're supposed to feel this way about Rachel. I know right. some people don't. And we're not, uh, you know... We're not criticizing anybody who likes her, not remotely. No, if you're like, Rachel, my baby, stop making fun of her, that's fine. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. But, but I feel like, yes, she has been sort of painted as an antagonist at this point. Yes. Yes, she has. But it, And I feel like our reaction is not because we did, like think Rachel is a bad character or something like that. It's just, you know, she's done so many things to our clones, like our favorite clones that we kind of are just, you know, we don't love Rachel at this moment because of the bad things that she's done to characters that we like. Pretty much. Because again, like, she kidnapped Kira. <laughs> yeah. Come on. She kidnapped Kira. She tried to frame Felix for murder. She, you know, smashed the Kira's bone marrow that would have helped Kasima, which is something against both Kira and Kasima. Like, that's a doubly bad action right there. <sighs> she tried to, like, take away one of Sarah's ovaries. She's done some bad things, is what we're saying. <laughs> she has. <sighs> so, yes, we're we're finding it hard to like Rachel. But if you do, by all means, go for it. <laughs> like or Yeah. Go for it. Like her away. We're not saying don't like Rachel if you like Rachel, but currently she's she's not on our warm and fuzzy hugs list. No, not remotely. No. But anyway, we thought we'd start out talking about the the concept of Rachel's facade, because so much of what we've seen of Rachel this past season, because of course she showed up at the very end of season one, and was mostly just sort of like... A woman standing in front of a big, huge window. <laughs> yes. It's like, I have to have deep, thoughtful conversations. I'm going to look out this window. Much like Jack Donaghy. Yes. <laughs> it's a 30 Rock reference for anybody who did not watch 30 Rock. Anyway. And Horatio What's-His-Face on CSI Miami. I could never watch that show, because it seemed like whenever I saw an interrogation where he was questioning somebody, all he was doing was looking out the window and not talking to them directly. Weird. I do not watch that show, so I I can't comment. But anyway, so now that we've spent a season with Rachel, I still kind of don't feel like we have a really good grasp on what Rachel's deal actually is, if that makes any sense. Because 
so much of what we've seen from her is her putting on a bit of an act, I think, right? She definitely has a like a professional detached demeanor that we see 95% of the time. And it's difficult to tell where her emotions really lie because of it. So I would agree. Okay. And and we did get a sense of, you know, her her inner turmoil in in the sequences that you hate. <laughs> yes. I don't like them. <laughs> Where they sort of did like a little flash to her freaking out and, you know, wrecking Leahy's office and all that sort of thing. Which Stephanie probably doesn't want to talk about, right? We can. No, I mean that was that was really all I had. I just Okay. I think that is why we can definitively say that what we see is a facade, right? Well, certainly we're not getting all of her we're not getting all the information about Rachel that is is there. I think that that definitely is revealed. And also by the little I don't know how to say like cutaways to her kind of laughing and having kind of a freak out later in the in the season when she's watching the home movies. You know, we definitely get a sense in the in the second season there's a lot going on inside Rachel that never makes it to the surface. Right. I guess that is what I'm trying to say though, right? Cuz cuz like the whole idea of a facade is that it's like a fancy exactly. Um, fancy coating over whatever is underneath. Yeah. So yeah, so I feel like we learned more about Rachel in the second season, but there's still a lot to her that we don't really have access to because of how disconnected she tries to be, it seems like, from these like darker parts of her. Right. Or the emotional parts of her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's all professional seeming. Which is why Tatiana Mazzani has said that she really enjoyed playing Rachel because Rachel is so contained and controlled, which is very much not how Tatiana's usual demeanor seems to be, even her as a person, as well as the other clone characters, you know, she's very, even, I guess Allison's a bit more contained, but not really, you know, <laughs> we see Allison <laughs> lose it on a regular basis, but, but with Rachel, you know, she had to be very controlled and precise and not a whole lot coming to the surface. Right. Rachel's got all her stuff on lockdown. Yeah. So we're going to try to talk about what we know about Rachel, but I guess we're leading in with this caveat of we still feel like there's there's a lot that we've yet to see, or there could be quite a bit that we've yet to realize about her because of this disconnect between what we what she presents and her actual inner emotions. Right. Much of this is what we've inferred from what we've seen. So as you mentioned, she's introduced in season one, where she is pretty much just, you know, we just get a couple scenes with her, not a, not a ton. And she's very much, you know, the, the, the pro clone is how they, they set her up as the clone that was raised by the experiment as sort of a control to the rest of the clones who were sent out into the world with families. And, you know, I think our first images of her are in that really big, empty, kind of top floor of a building somewhere with clearly not a whole lot of access to, you know, other people don't really have a whole lot of access to her. And you, have you I think, previously have talked about that as sort of her almost being like Rapunzel up in the tower. I did. I did make reference to that at some point, which was my, I think, mid-season two 
epiphany of sorts that kind of wasn't actually accurate, but maybe kind of is. (laughs) (laughs) We still don't really know, is the thing. But I guess what was your first impression of her? Did you think that made her seem like she had a lot of power when we first made her in season one or that she was isolated and therefore disempowered? I think my first impression of her, speaking strictly, you know, end of the first season, I don't think I was thinking the Rapunzel thing. Well, I I know I wasn't thinking about the Rapunzel thing because that sort of randomly came to me at some point mid-season two, I think. But um, I don't know. I guess I I thought she probably had more power, right? Because since she was the one who seemed to be in charge of um, the the contracts with Sarah, because it seemed like the way it had been phrased was Leaky had failed, so she had to step in to deal with Mm -hmm. Sarah. Right. I think was how they framed it at the time, so... I believe I had the same impression as well that she occupied a higher position, a more powerful position in Dyad than Linky did. And I believe they say that she does, actually, in season two, that her position within the company actually means that she has she's higher up in the hierarchy than than Linky is. However, I think we we quickly come to realize in, in season two that sort of her relationship with Dyad is very complicated. It's it's like she's she has a lot of power, and yet we we get indications that they could very easily take that away from her. It's almost like they're giving it to her to humor her in a way. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that is what Leaky says. Leaky says something about how, you know, you may be my boss, but I'm still your monitor or something like that, right? I don't remember that one. I don't remember that exchange. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying you're wrong. but I'm paraphrasing, but I think that was... Unless I made that up. But I don't think I did. <laughs> I think it that hasn't means it's been time that for a <laughs> I know. It's like, it, has, it hasn't been that long since I've seen season two, but it's like, wait, did that happen? Did I make that up? Wait. That's the downside to talking about it constantly, right? Yeah. <laughs> At some point, it's you're like, like, was that a conversation I had or did that happen in the show? Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> I will say, we, we got an email from, from Jonathan, and most of what Jonathan talked about in regards to Rachel was about sort of her power that she has within dyad and and this is a bit from what he said a lot of things that look like signs of rachel's power on a first viewing can be read in retrospect as signs of her containment within the highly circumscribed world she inhabits the image of the executive commanding a vast office space the imperial figure at the window lording it over all she surveys the glossy surfaces of her apartment these appear to be emblems of power and privilege, but they are also emblems of her isolation. They mark boundaries that set her off from everyone who surrounds her. Rachel's always been and remains a controlled experiment. Which is kind of what I had been talking about uh, at some point during or shortly after season two. Right. So, so yeah, we just, it's hard to sort of get a handle on how Rachel feels about Dyad because she, she wields the power that she has within the organization, we see her wield it quite freely. And she seems to relish the fact that she has power to exert over the other clones. But at the same time, we see moments of resentment. Mm-hmm. Well, and there is this whole thing. And I think, uh, I think Jonathan mentioned this in his email too, that Delphine says that she'd never met Rachel and then as soon as she does meet Rachel, she has to go sign a confidentiality agreement, like a new confidentiality agreement. So, again, sort of reinforcing this idea that 
it seems like Rachel's so high up because because of status stuff within Dyad, but there's also this layer of, you know, or is she just sort of being hidden away a little bit? Like, is she so hard to access because they don't want that many people knowing about her? Mm-hmm. It's all dual meanings and such. Right, because it's not like Delphine, because I was thinking about this, and it's not like Delphine didn't know who Rachel was, because when I believe Sarah brings brings it up to her, she says, I've never met Rachel. So she knew who she was, knew there was a clone within the organization, it seems like. And yet when she meets her, that's when she has to sign the confidentiality agreement. So it wasn't necessarily knowledge of clone within the organization. It was actual contact with Rachel that required the need for a new agreement. Which seems weird, right? It does. It does. So yeah, I just, I feel like there's a really complicated relationship between Rachel and her position as as a proclode, you know, being raised by Dyad, more or less. We see uh, suggestions of a somewhat tender relationship between her and Leaky. She says that's why he, he, you know, he's she's essentially giving him a head start instead of just sending him directly to his death. But like I said, there there also just seems to be elements of resenting the control that Dyad has over her. Well, and I guess I'm also kind of curious, though, because she has that exchange with Kira when she kidnaps Kira. And she says something to her about, uh, you'll learn to love it here just as I did or something like that. So it's just kind of a, I don't know, the phrasing of that it seems uh, a little odd. Or is that just me? No, no, it's, again, definitely this indication that she remembers being taken away from her parents to some extent and having to adjust to the fact that, or maybe even resenting the fact that she was now within Dyad, but she did come to like being there eventually. Mm-hmm. And there's actually somebody, I'm trying to remember now if this was an email that we got or just something I randomly saw on Tumblr or wherever, but there was something I saw talking about the room that Kira was in and sort of wondering if that had been Rachel's childhood room, essentially. Right. And, you know, if it was, you notice the windows in there are actually rather small, as if they're maybe trying to make it hard for anybody to know that she was there or something. This is a completely random aside, but the there were like foxes, I believe, on the walls in the room. And that really reminds me of the fox that's on, it, I don't know if it's on the cover, but it's on the CD at least, of Nico Case's Fox, fox Confessor Brings the Flood. And I don't think that was intentional, but that's what I think of when I see that room. I think you might have mentioned that during the episode that we did. I wouldn't for be surprised. For I was like, Is that the Nico Case Fox? It looks like the Nico Case Fox. I remember you saying that either way. Yeah. A scene that I thought was really interesting in regards to Rachel's relationship to kind of her relationship to Dyad, I guess, was when we see Paul being handed over to her as a new monitor, or I guess them asking Paul, will you be her monitor? Because it seems like there's this very calm acceptance that she has of the fact that, you know, well, I'm a clone of the experiment. Of course, I have a monitor just like everybody else. But 
I don't know. There at the same time, we have then later on that confrontation, we'll call it that, between Rachel and Paul, where she clearly, regardless of whether you feel like it's it's a sexual assault of Paul or not, clearly Rachel is asserting her control over Paul. Mm-hmm. Which almost feels like a reaction to the fact that she has to have a monitor. Right. It seems like. So I don't know. Is that your impression too that we're seeing sort of in that in that interaction between the two of them? Are we perhaps seeing some resentment toward being a clone and having to have a monitor like bubble over into real life? Like, are we actually seeing some of Rachel's uh, maybe some of Rachel's emotional landscape coming to the surface? I wouldn't be surprised. That does seem to be the way it plays out. Yeah, is that? Uh this whole idea of being so contained and so confined by this setup, the system that she's been raised in, that, yeah, I could see Rachel going, okay, if this is what you're going to give me, then this is, you know, I'm going to take advantage of the parts of it that I can. Yeah, it seems very much to me like, okay, fine. I have to have this person who monitors my my health and well-being but he's going to damn well know that i am his boss you know what i mean it it just is sort of trying to get some power in this potentially very disempowering relationship it right. feels like right the sort of um you know you might be in charge of keeping tabs on me but i'm in charge of you yeah that's what it feels like to me. So maybe that, and I feel like that is the big thing that makes me, or one of the big things that makes me feel like Rachel is resentful resentful of being where she is within Dyad, being a clone perhaps, before she gets this news from Duncan that, you know, she was designed to be, fertile. she's for infertile by design. Like, uh, for sure, from then on, we see a lot of, like, resentment fostering up inside her, but... Before, prior to that, this is like, I feel like the the interaction that makes me think there's some resentment that we might not see (laughs) otherwise. I actually kind of wonder if Rachel had any contact with any of the other clones prior to what we see with Sarah, especially. You know what I mean? That's a good question. Because that would also, I think, foster more resentment. Just because, you know, if if you're raised a certain way and you don't really see any of the alternatives, because I think this is one of the big themes of the series, right, is seeing what else you hypothetically could have become. Mm, right. And sort of, you know, how do you deal with that, you know? Right. Uh, and and so I, I guess I just wonder, did... Rachel, even knowing that she was a clone and knowing that she's part of this experiment, you know, what if she just didn't have any direct contact with any of the other clones and didn't really, I guess, experience them and their existence in this direct way? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It does seem kind of unlikely, but at the same time, I feel like she might have had access to the data, just given her position within dyad within dyad but reading about it versus interacting face to face with another clone i would imagine be very different things so i think you have a good point i guess my point is this that 
if this is all you know, mm-hmm. you know, your own upbringing, it's sort of what difference does it make, right? Because that's that's all you know. So why would you think twice about it necessarily? Right. But it, to see what else is out there, and especially Sarah being a mother, which of course is the big thing that they really emphasize that has thrown Rachel off. But I don't know. I, I just, I get a sense that having interacted with Sarah, who also wasn't monitored as far as we know, I think maybe that's really also contributing to Rachel's apparent spiraling out of control throughout season two. Right. I also wonder what her relationship with Daniel was like. Mm-hmm. Because we we see that he has some clothing at her apartment. It suggested that if he didn't live with her, he at least was over there quite a bit. I think the implication was that he lived there. Okay. Then he has a very small wardrobe. <laughs> no judgment. Just say it. So, you know, did... And there really didn't seem to be, from from when he was torturing Sarah, there didn't seem to be a whole lot of affection there between Daniel and Rachel. Because, you know, Sarah tries to play that card. It's like, oh, I look like Rachel, don't I? To try to get him to not, you know, cut her ear off or whatever he's about to do. And it doesn't seem to phase him at all. And he makes some comment about how, you know, Leaky couldn't do this. Rachel might be able to do this. So he he does seem to be aware of Rachel's cruel streak. Right. Well, so, and this, this kind of goes back to my earlier comment, and I don't remember when it was that I said this, so I don't remember. But I, I at some previous episode, had made the observation that it seemed like they matched up the monitors to the clones. Mm-hmm. And I think this is kind of in that vein, too, because they're both a little detached and uh, willing to inflict pain. <laughs> right. Uh, they're both a little awful. Right. But I do wonder, was there actual affection within their relationship or was it purely a business relationship? You know, Daniel knew that it was his job to be his monitor. This was the, you know, just part of, of doing his job. Or was, you know, did they actually like each other on some level? That I obviously, obviously have no idea. But yeah, I, I am a little curious about that, too, because I don't think we really see too much of them interacting directly. And when we do, it is very, very business focused. Yeah, we see, I believe he's in the background where I think maybe, maybe Paul is talking to Sarah, maybe not. But we, we do see him like get, serving Rachel tea and things like that. Like he's very close to Rachel proximity wise. But again, there's not a whole lot of – we don't get a great sense of their relationship outside of a business relationship. As I recall, at some point in the first episode of the second season, Sarah calls Paul and asks to speak to Rachel, I think. And Daniel's the one who takes the phone and speaks right. for Rachel. So, right, yeah, that was – I remember watching that and kind of wondering what the dynamic was actually supposed to be. Like, is – I, I think that's when I started wondering, is is Rachel really in control or is Rachel seeming to be in control, but actually, you know, at the mercy of Dyad, essentially? Right. Because I will say that Rachel did seem to be a little shaken 
when Daniel was killed. She does ask to see his body. Mm-hmm. And then she has that moment where she hands Paul his gun and says, this is Daniel's, this was Daniel's gun. But that could just be, you know, this is a man that she knew. This is a man that she presumably, you know, had a sexual relationship with who's who's died. And that can be traumatic on many levels, even if you don't love that person. So, so yeah, their, their, their dynamic still remains kind of a mystery to me that I would be curious to hear, hear more thoughts on if, if, you know, if Tatiana Maslany had any to share about what she thought Daniel and, the, and Rachel's relationship was like. Right. And part of that, too, after he died, it's like, well, is she upset about the loss of Daniel or is she upset that Sarah and Helena took him from her? Right. Which is undoubtedly part of it, but it, I guess I'm just wondering, what's the ratio there? <laughs> right, yeah. In in Rachel's mind. Anyway. <laughs> but let's maybe talk a little bit about Rachel's relationship with her parents. Because we have this, this scene, I believe it's in the second episode, I think, of, of season two, where Rachel has... No, it's way later than that. Because it's in the episode where... Which Helena comes back. Yeah. It's like episode four or something. So, you know, Sarah has broken into Rachel's apartment, hotel suite slash apartment, whatever the heck it is. And Rachel's has found room. These, right, there we go. Has her living quarters. There you go. <laughs> or maybe flat. Rachel, I call it her flat. But <laughs> but she's broken into where Rachel lives and, you know, Kasima's she's on the phone with Kasima and Felix and Kasima's giving this like psychological evaluation of of Rachel saying what her childhood must have been like. It must have been this very clinical thing. And of course, Sarah which is, of course, these- I mean, I'm sorry to cut in here. No, go ahead. Which, of course, is I think what most of fandom had sort of collectively assumed. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I feel like she's speaking for the fans here, what the fans would have assumed Rachel's upbringing to be like. And of course, it's this big setup for Sarah finding these videos revealing that Rachel had a very affectionate, loving relationship with the Duncans. And we do see her return to these videos and and rewatch them. And that's where she has one of her kind of mini breaks where we see her kind of you know, maybe perhaps not too mentally stable side coming out to play, at least in it, we we can see it as as viewers of the TV show. So what did you think these these videos were revealing about Rachel when you when we first saw them, I guess? Ooh, um, I think that was one of those big moments of the the show's creators kind of pulling a gotcha on the audience, right? Because we'd all assumed mm-hmm. the stuff that Kasima had been saying. And so, at the very least, there's a, a, a strain of sentimentality that I don't think any of us was expecting. Did you... Yeah, for sure, that. Did you... But did you immediately sort of buy into this idea like, oh, she has warm and tender fuzzy feelings for her parents? Yeah, I probably did. Yeah. I did too. And so I should have known better, right? <laughs> but like here's the thing though, like we still don't really know what the truth of it is because yes, later she right. talks to Duncan and she's kind of like, "I was just watching these to <laughs> remind myself how much I hate you." <laughs> or whatever it was she said. <laughs> and uh but like how much of that is Rachel trying to convince either him or herself about that? 
and how much of it is, you know, true. No, exactly. But I, I feel like I was kind of, I should know better not to know that we're getting the whole story by just this new little piece of information that that's been revealed. Uh, but we do get these confrontations between her and Duncan. We get a couple. And the first time she's very emotional seeing her her father who she thought had been dead. But then, you know, subsequently, she talks to him about watching these videos and, you know, she watches them because she doesn't really remember any of those feelings that she had toward them at all. But then when he when she realizes he's dying, he's killed himself with the ingesting the tea, you know, she runs to him and, and holds on to him and sort of screams at him. So, yeah, you are left with, was she just trying to punish him by telling him that she doesn't remember feeling, you know, loved by him? Or was that her being honest? Or was she mad at him because she wanted to kill him? <laughs> <laughs> These are the things I wonder when the hiatus gets too long. <laughs> hiatus madness. It's possible. I do feel, though, that she was sad that he was leaving her again. She does say but, that, yes. Yeah, yeah. But it is possible. <laughs> she was also mad that she didn't get a shot at him first. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm not ruling it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's also possible that what she says to him is true, but then seeing him dying you know, that rekindles something inside of her and she is distraught to think that, you know, she's going to lose this man again. That even though if she may not even if she even though she may not remember the warm fuzzies as she claims, she still knows that he raised her and and felt a loss when when he died or she thought he died. But I don't know. Rachel's very complicated. I could also see her being upset with Duncan just in general because you know, this whole time he had been alive, but where the heck has he been? Right. He he left her to them, so... Yeah. You know, it's complicated. Right. As with everything yeah. on the show, it's complicated. So so maybe a bit of a, a parallel between when when Helena stabs Amelia? Mm. Where, mm-hmm. You know, they turned me into this, and you let, you know, you gave them to me, and they turned me into this monster. You gave me to them. What I say? You said you gave them to me. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been interesting. <laughs> that would have. <laughs> that is a good point that you make, though. That that does sort of echo that moment of uh, Helena stabbing Amelia, because they do sort of make a thing where they have, in some ways, echoed Helena's story with with Rachel's. Yeah. But I do remember being surprisingly touched when we got to see Rachel's first reaction to seeing Duncan again, where she gets all, all very teary-eyed and joins him at the table. Like, given that, again, that character has not is not on my warm and fuzzy hugs list, it was surprising to me that that moment still managed to make me think, oh, you know. It was unexpectedly emotional. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that whole time, you're really not sure which way that reunion's going to go. Mm-hmm. Because it's Rachel, and Rachel's pretty hard to predict, I think. Yeah. And that was the first display of 
real emotion we'd we'd seen from her really or was it real (laughs) i think it was because she apologized for it true i was mostly joking i know i know (laughs) because even though we'd seen her clearly be angered by things upset by things she did not lose emotional control whereas there it was just pure emotion coming to the surface or was it no i'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) you're just you're just having fun now (laughs) what can i say i am no rachel (laughs) i think we got a hint of some mommy issues or at least some motherhood issues with rachel in season one she has that that comment that she makes to Sarah during one of their meetings about, you know, motherhood is a wonderful thing or something of that, in that nature. And I remember us kind of speculating, like, what does that mean about her? Is, there seems to be some sadness there. But in season two, we, we get a very clear picture of how much the fact that she is infertile really pains Rachel. Right. I remember after seeing season one, we were kind of wondering, you know, well, can she not have a child? Does she have a child? Did she have a child? Right. And uh, yeah, because of I think because of the way she worded it, we were sort of wondering if if she'd had a child that had been taken away or, or killed or something. But but no, just the same story that Allison and Beth have. And that was, again, I didn't love the cutaways to her angrily destroying Leaky's office, but we, we got a clear sense of just how how much that, that hurts her to learn that it's not a fluke that she and the rest of the clones are infertile. It wasn't some mistake in the experiment that her, her father, who he, she even might have had tender feelings toward, had purposefully made her unable to have children, you know. It, that reaction there was so visceral and just revealing of Rachel as a person. Mm-hmm. I think that is one of those moments where it's easiest to sympathize with Rachel, though, because, right, you know, the whole time you can kind of see how you'd be able to maybe brush off the fact that you're an experiment until something has been tampered with so directly, you know? Right. I feel like that moment for Rachel is maybe similar to Kasima's moment realizing that she's ill. You know, it's kind of easy to just, or it's easier, I guess, to accept the fact that you're a clone and kind of deal with the life that's been presented with you and until you realize some, because you're a clone, you have this big thing that has affected your life in such a dramatic way. Right. Then it's, you know, then it's kind of over the edge you... You get kind of upset about that. Because <laughs> I think it's one thing to find out that somebody made you. But it's another thing to find out that they deliberately, essentially, uh, created a flaw or what you... Well, no, I mean, it's it's a flaw. I mean, it made Kasima sick. So, yeah, you know, to have built in problems like that that's a whole other level of of uh objectionable i guess yeah and clearly rachel's 
feelings about motherhood, her desire to be a mother, but inability to be a mother really seems to have, it has the greatest impact on her relationship with Sarah. The the great resentment we see, the the hostility we see towards Sarah seems to really come out of the fact that Sarah can have a child, has had a child, and Rachel cannot. You know, she makes that comment to Duncan about the fact that, you know, this she calls Sarah a nasty word. I don't remember which it was. <laughs> but, you know, this person who was unmonitored managed to be successful in having children, whereas, you know, her, who'd been monitored all of her life very closely, wasn't. So we we get to see how, you know, Rachel's hurt at not being able to have children and that that element of her her personal, you know, her her personal anguish and pain is really what seems to shape her relationship with with Sarah. And it is kind of interesting to me because obviously we see that Helena has the same situation as Sarah essentially in terms of of uh biologically. But in regards to her fertility, you mean? Yes, in regards to her fertility, but you know, that's never really addressed. We haven't really seen any I guess any indication at all that Rachel's really aware of anything about Helena, right? I mean, I don't know that there's been much discussion from Rachel about Helena, has there? There hasn't. Leaky talked about her, and I don't get the impression that they realize that she and Sarah are twins. Hmm. Am I correct in that? I don't think that they, the dyad folks, have mentioned having knowledge of that. I don't remember either. Because I, I feel like if they knew, because that's how the, per, I still don't understand how the Prolethians knew that she and Sarah were twins, but whatever. Aside from that, you know, if they knew that Helena and Sarah were identical twins, it would seem to me they could make the logical leap that Helena was perhaps fertile too. But we don't really get the sense that they have made that conclusion. That I can remember. Where I was going with this is that, I don't know, I guess it makes sense to me that Rachel, even if she did know, would still be focused on Sarah. Just because I think, to me, in my mind, as different as Rachel and Sarah are, it seems like Rachel would have an even harder time relating it all to Helena. Mm -hmm. Or is that just me? (laughs) No, I think so. And I think also just the fact that Sarah has already had a child right means that she would she would be more likely to resent sarah because just because helena is seems to be fertile she doesn't have a child yet maybe she you know and maybe she never will but but yeah i think um there wouldn't even if she knew about helena there wouldn't be the same level of resentment there yet at least actually come to think of it and this is off topic but i'm gonna say it anyway it would not surprise me if maybe amelia because Amelia is, was basically the only one who knew they were twins. Maybe Amelia told the Prolethians or was somehow involved with the Prolethians. And maybe that's why Mrs. S was telling Sarah not to trust her. Yeah. Sorry, random aside. That was my thought, too. I believe when, when I first brought up the whole, how did they know that? I, that was one of my thoughts, too, is that perhaps Amelia was involved with the farming Prolethians, but we didn't we didn't know that yet. Mm-hmm. And now we may never know. <laughs> but but getting back to, to Rachel, probably one of the more upsetting moments of the season was when she kidnaps Kira. And how I was dare actually she? Really, 
I know. But I was actually really surprised at the subsequent episode. I don't I guess I shouldn't say surprised, but I was very worried when that happened that in the subsequent episode she'd be all you're my daughter now, you know. Right. <laughs> I was actually even though it was upsetting, I was almost relieved that it was just Kira hanging out in a bedroom and Dyad and it wasn't way creepier. It was creepy enough. It was creepy enough, but I my head went way creepier. Right. No, I think a lot of us were worried that Rachel was going to pull a whole, you know, you can call me mother <laughs> kind yes, of a exactly. thing. And uh, yeah, mostly it was just, I'm going to, I'm going to nickname you Bait, Kira. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually a little surprised she wasn't like warmer to Kira. I, but it is Rachel. I was going to say, I think that's as warm <laughs> as Rachel knows that's how to Rachel be. Gets. <laughs> Fair enough. And now I feel bad for Rachel, which happens so rarely. I have sympathy for Rachel. <laughs> I, I I do have sympathy for Rachel. I, I completely do. But I get, but she's still not in warm and fuzzy hugs category because she's done. And let's let's talk about that. I, to me, Rachel is still squarely in the antagonist category. I think there's a question mark after that. But for for at the moment. Rachel is still a, 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 a clear antagonist for me. Oh, I completely agree. I, I I think it's the difference between finding Rachel sympathetic and finding her rootable, essentially. It's hard to root mm, for yeah. Rachel, you know? She mm-hmm. hasn't really done anything to indicate any remorse, I guess. Right. You know, yeah. because... and And again... They've done a lot to sort of draw parallels between Rachel and Helena. But to me, they made Helena much more sympathetic by this point in the first season. I agree. Hi, Tatiana is everyone. Um, This is Julia. I am a longtime listener, first time caller, I guess. (laughs) Um, I'm I'm actually wondering, um, I'd like to hear your guys' thoughts on uh, Rachel versus Helena and why we cut Helena so much slack um, and Rachel almost none at all. Um, Myself included, I love Helena and Rachel. I find, I, I mean, obviously Tatiana does a great job, but like I find her to be horrible. <laughs> um, and arguably Helena has done much worse, much worse stuff than Rachel has. <laughs> um, so uh, I'm wondering if you guys can talk a little bit about why that is, uh, why you think that is that, that we're so sympathetic towards Helena and not towards Rachel, even though both of them have had, really, really traumatic upbringings. Um, I think they actually are quite similar in a lot of ways. Um, anyway, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, I love the show. I listen to it religiously. Uh, so keep it up. Thanks, guys. So so Bob sent us an email, and he has a prediction about about Rachel. He says, I get the feeling, and this is based on nothing, that Rachel is going to become a fan favorite in season three, just as Helena did in season two. Helena did far worse things than Rachel has, and Rachel seems to be motivated strictly by a desire for family. While this is part of Helena's motivation, Helena also had the religiously motivated purge thing going on. So I think that if anything, the transition for Rachel might be easier to, to accomplish. And I don't know about this because it seemed to me for, for, for Helena, they really built in a lot of sympathy for her character from the beginning. 
you know, we have, again, Kasima doing a lot of psychoanalyzing her and suggesting, you know, she'd been brainwashed into thinking this and that by the people who raised her. And she just clearly was so damaged and manipulated from the beginning. I think it was a lot easier to sort of root for her to get the better of the people who were exploiting her. Right. It was actually the police who did the psychoanalysis. And then I think Sarah told that to Kasima and Kasima was like, yes, all that fits. But yeah, I mean, they they did talk about how, you know, she'd probably been abused as a child or something like that. And, And yeah, I mean, they did a lot to frame her in a certain way, even though, again, for the first several episodes, Helena's terrified. <laughs> she is, and she does do horrible things. She does. I mean, the first thing we see her do, even though we don't know it's her at the time, is she puts a bullet through Katya's head, which... And then keeps firing yes, at Sarah. Yes, yeah. it's terrible. Nobody's arguing yeah. that it's not terrible. But, but, you know, that's the big thing, right? They've they framed it in such a way or they did it eventually, but they did it, I think, more quickly than they did with Rachel. They did it more quickly and took it further than anything they've done for Rachel, to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with, with Helena, she does come to the realization that everything that Tomas has told her is wrong. And in a weird way, you know, toward the end of the first season, she she kind of repents, you know? Mm-hmm. She, at least, you know, she gets angry about the fact that Amelia gave her to the Prolethians and, or let her go to the Prolethians, and it turned her into a horrible person, essentially. I mean, she expresses this by stabbing Amelia through the gut, which is not healthy, but, <laughs> you know, we get the sense that she's realizing what she's been doing is wrong. Right. Rachel, on the other hand, I feel like she knows that what she's doing is wrong and she doesn't care. Right. Well, and the whole level of privilege that the two of them have experienced growing up is completely different. Mm, Yeah. Because, you know, Helena, as we talked about, went to go be with Tomas when she was 12. Before that, she was with the nuns who apparently were rather cruel to her, locked her in the dark and whatnot. So, yeah, I mean, that versus the dyad stuff, even if they were keeping her relatively isolated, it's still, or at least the impression they give is it's still a kinder upbringing than what Helena grew up with. And at least for the first part of her life, she did have parents who genuinely seemed to love her. Yes. And I'm not saying that Rachel hasn't been necessarily manipulated in similar ways as Helena has. But again, for me, it falls down to the fact that, you know, Rachel gets the big picture. Mm -hmm. And she is still kind of, she seems to at least be still out for her, you know, just just for her. Whereas Helena kind of got a sense of a bigger picture. And she realized, oh, you know, what I've been doing is wrong. I these are my these are my sisters, and I want to get to know them. So it's they're at a harder point right now, I think, for Rachel, at least in my mind, to turn Rachel around and make her sort of a a protagonist versus an antagonist in this piece. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I feel like they're in a tougher spot. I agree. Yeah, I they they seem to be turning Helena around 
pretty quickly in the first season. You know, we see her questioning Tomas and actually sort of struggling with this idea that, you know, she she sees something in Sarah and realizes that maybe what she's been told this whole time is wrong. And then, you know, she finds out that Sarah has a kid and she becomes extremely protective of Kira. And again, this is the like the really big deal with me at least is I guess my my barometer of goodness, if you will, is how they treat Kira, right? That's how you can mm-hmm. tell if somebody's on the good side or the bad side, right? And how Kira reacts to them. Yes, that too. But I mean, you know, we see Delphine in the first season keeping Kira out of the situation with Leaky. You know, she she hides her from him. And we see Helena being protective of Kira. And even though she goes originally to kidnap Kira, you know, after walking a block and talking to her, realizes she just can't do it. And then we see her struggle with it after Kira gets hit by the car and she's blaming herself and, you know, this whole thing. There's the repentance on on Helena's part. And we just don't see any of that from Rachel. Rachel seems to sort of, you know, revel in the fact that she's causing Sarah pain by right. by kidnapping Kira, you know? Right. Rachel is far more nefarious, I guess, in my mind, than Helena. Yeah. Because there is that sense that she knows what she's doing, and she knows that it's wrong, and she doesn't care. Right. And I think also Helena has had working in her favor in regards to winning over the audience, is that Helena's funny, you know? Even when she's still terrifying in season seven and very... Or season seven? (laughs) (laughs) Say episode seven. (laughs) Here's hoping for season seven. (laughs) Even when she's still terrifying and unpredictable in like episode seven, parts developed in an unusual manner, you know, she's a very funny character. You know, let's do a lunch. You know, she, Helena makes us laugh. Even in, in earlier in the season, like where she's, she's eating the muffin in the police station and talking on the phone with Paul. You know, it, it's much easier, I think, to, both sympathize with and root for characters who kind of make you laugh and you that helps establish kind of a kinship i think between you and another character rachel will just you know from who she is as a character it's it's difficult to connect with her because she's so closed off and isolated yeah i was going to say helena is weirdly perhaps uh far more relatable to me than rachel is yeah i have nothing in common with helena like you know background or surface wise but you know we do both like to sing on road trips (laughs) (laughs) loudly and off key on occasion so what do you think in regards to season three do we think rachel will continue to be more of an antagonistic character to clone club or do you think we're going to see her or see the writers try to turn it around and have her be more of a protagonist it's this show so it could go either way but right. if I had to make a prediction, I'd say villain. She really has not been set up by the end of season two to be redeemed at this point. I'm not saying it won't happen in season three, but yeah, I kind of feel the same way that she's still going to be pretty villainous come season three. I mean, Sarah took her eye 
Yeah. She's going to be mad. And, you know, did it with the help of Kasima and Scott. And Woo-hoo. great Scott. Um, and so, yeah, she's not going to be happy, I don't think. You know? And, no. and the fact that Sarah escaped means she still can't have her children that she wants. So, yeah. I... I don't see season three going well in that regard. I'm also curious to see how her mental state is affected in season three by by everything that has happened, because she was kind of losing it end of season two, it seemed like. And, and it seems like it can only go downward from here. Yeah. I don't know. I'm curious. Yeah. And Jacqueline left us a comment on Facebook saying, I think Tet does the best job with her acting when playing Rachel. It's so controlled and tight. All her movements are slow and almost planned out before she makes them. I would love to know what dance or playlist Tat listens to to get into character for Rachel. Has that ever been mentioned? I think the makeup team do a great job here, too. The honey blonde hair and the soft tan really makes her stand out as an individual from the others. And her fashion, I will kill to have the clothes that Rachel wears. Amazing. And yes, Jacqueline, it has been mentioned, the songs that Tatiana Maslande listens to in order to get into character for Rachel has been described as 90s slow jams. So there you go. Dan also sent us a message on Twitter saying, should she have survived the pencil, she needs a freaky leaky prosthetic eye. I agree. It would be awesome and super creepy. So thank you to Jonathan, Bob, Julia, Jacqueline, and Dan for sending us messages about Rachel. For upcoming episodes, we're going to be talking about Kira Kalansara, the the Morrison-Manning family unit, if you will. And there's going to be another episode about Donnie and Allison. And we're going to do one about Beth. So if you have comments about any of those, please send those in anytime. We do especially love voice messages. You know, you guys have to listen to us talk all the time. We want to hear you guys too. And if you ever have a few minutes to spare, we'd really appreciate any reviews or ratings on iTunes or Stitcher. We have links to do that and other ways that you can help support the podcast at tatianaiseveryone.com slash support. We really, really appreciate that. It's nice to read your comments, and it helps people find the podcast. We would love to hear your thoughts about Rachel if if she is somebody that you, you know, want to give warm and fuzzy hugs to, or if you, like us, still are kind of reserved about her, and if you think she'll still be an antagonist in season three, we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can leave a comment on the show notes for this episode over at TatianaIsEveryone.com slash 49. You can send us an email to feedback at TatianaIsEveryone.com, or you can send us a voice message by clicking on the send voicemail tab on the right hand side of our website. You can find us on Twitter at TIE Podcast, and we are also on Facebook. And this week, our outrage over Rachel's kidnapping of Kira was played by Tatiana Maslany. Thanks for listening. <laughs>